What's up, everyone? Alan Thrall here with a very special guest. Uh, before he introduced himself, I want to say that this video is going to be primarily about losing weight and gaining or maintaining strength. And then we'll move into some basic nutrition talk as it relates to strength training. So, Jordan, go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. Hey, uh, everyone. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum from Barbell Medicine. You may remember me from other such Instagram videos. As, no, I'm uh, just kidding. I, uh, I am on uh, the gram as the shirtless doctor who does Instagram lives way too frequently. Um, I'm a starting strength coach and seminar staff. I've been a coach for about 10 years now. Uh, I got my medical degree, a master's in anatomy and physiology. I've been coaching folks and doing nutrition work with them again for about a decade and, uh, happened upon Alan, uh, uh, back here in February, and uh, we've been we've been battling uh, for beard supremacy uh, from different angles, but 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 battling no no less. So <laughs> happy yeah. to be here. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so now that you've established you are a credible source, uh, we can <laughs> we can start talking. Thank you very much for being here. Uh, appreciate your time. I know that as a coach and a doctor, people pay a lot of money for your advice. So and here you are giving away for free to thousands, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people. Hopefully, yeah. Wait, I feel like the rock quote should be overlaid there, right? Like the millions and <laughs> no, okay. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> Maybe not. We'll see. Yeah, Austin's video that he made, the the uh, deadlift errors. I think it's got like a hundred, well over a hundred thousand views. So oh, shit, I'm about to good. get Z list famous. I'm pumped. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so all right, all right. So in the past, I've done tons of videos on gaining weight. And the importance uh, for skinny, weak men and women, boys and girls, uh, and the fact that they need to gain weight. They need to eat a lot of food. And I speak through experience because I used to be six feet tall, 165 pounds, and weak. And uh, I decided to get strong, so I ate a whole lot of food. I got up to 255 pounds. I'm currently about 235, 240. But as I was gaining that weight, the strength uh, was coming every single day. I kept adding weight to the bar, and it wasn't getting any harder. I was literally making crazy progress, eating my face off. Uh, however, eating 7,000 calories a day might not be the best advice for someone who is morbidly obese. Uh, so let's open up the discussion. Is it possible, talking about losing weight, a considerable, a significant amount of weight, not cutting 5 or 10 pounds, but is it possible to lose a considerable amount of weight, and gain strength and build muscle, et cetera, et cetera. So that's very vague, but go ahead. Sure. Yeah. So I think first things we'll define uh, what we're talking about. So uh, uh, losing weight obviously refers to just all ma mass. So that, that includes body, uh, you know, just body fat. That includes uh, losing muscle mass, losing body water. All of those things are reflected as weight on the scale. So losing weight is, you know, pretty big umbrella term, uh, uh, you know, encompassing all of those things. Gaining strength, we should define strength. Strength being the production of force against an external resistance that we can uh, use, you know, specifically measure via barbell exercises. So we'll just use squat, press, deadlift, bench press uh, as our proxies for strength improvement. And then muscle mass has to be clearly defined as uh, in, increases in skeletal muscle mass because there are instances where you will see an increase in uh, muscle mass or uh, proxies for muscle mass that don't actually reflect actual skeletal muscle tissue. Uh, and for instance, you will see sometimes where people 
do certain dietary interventions uh, like a casein protein study may show increased nitrogen retention. And why that's important is because if you look, you, we used to think that if you looked at nitrogen retention studies, you would be able to tell if someone was gaining muscle mass as uh, because muscles are made out of protein and protein has a nitrogen in it. And it's the only, uh, you know, thing that has nitrogen in it in, in the body. So if you have a positive nitrogen balance, then you could say that, oh, someone's gaining muscle tissue. That's not necessarily the case because other muscles besides musculus, you know, skeletal muscle tissues has uh, uh, nitrogen in it. So uh, we don't use nitrogen studies, nitrogen retention studies to show muscle mass anymore. In fact, uh, we, we look at like certain amino acids and uh, how they're retained in the body. Uh, but in any event, when we say gain muscle mass, uh, that's specifically how we're, how we're measuring that is actual skeletal muscle tissue increase. So to kind of uh, open Pandora's box here, is it possible to lose a significant amount of weight, which we can say is gonna take a substantial period of time uh, and get stronger during that substantial period of time as evidenced by increased weight on the barbell uh, and thus increased force production? Uh, the answer is yes. So I, and I, I don't think that there are any coaches or people out there who would disagree that you can certainly lose weight and gain strength at the same time. Uh, and I've seen this so many times through my own coaching practice and through others coaching practices that again, I don't actually think that people would disagree. Uh, the caveat here is, is that, uh, how does that change the outcome? How does it change the rate of strength progression? How does it change how your strength training is going to go? And I think the easiest way to describe that is that you're making a compromise. The, to gain the maximum amount of strength that a person can, um, they basically would do what you did. And that's that, you know, your calories go up, go up, go up. So your body weight keeps going up and then your strength just, you know, rises, uh, you know, linearly and to a quite a quite a high level when compared to the where not only where you were, but just the, the general population. Um, and we're using body weight gain um, in it for a few reasons there. So when you're gaining body weight, by definition, your recovery resources from a nutrition standpoint are all met. There's no way that your calories are too low because you're gaining body weight. Now, that doesn't mean that your training fatigue is automatically, you know, being canceled out by your nutritional intake. So I don't mean that you can't, you know, actually have a few setbacks training-wise if you're eating enough calories to gain weight. But uh, what I'm saying is if the training intervention is correct, it's like uh, if you're a novice and you're doing starting strength, a linear progression and you're gaining body weight, then from a nutritional standpoint, okay, your training resources are, 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 are covered. Your recovery resources are covered. So automatically you're saying, well, from a nutritional standpoint, my uh, recovery resources are, co are, are, are covered. So I don't need to worry about that for why my recovery may be compromised. You would look at sleep, stress, uh, things of that nature, um, uh, or technique and, and, and stuff of stuff like that as to why you didn't progress if that in fact is the case. So it just takes one thing off your, uh, checklist. Like, why am I messing up or why am I not seeing the improvements that I would otherwise see? Um, and in addition, if you are gaining weight and this kind of ties into the second part of your question, then we can be reasonably sure that you're increasing your lean body mass, your skeletal muscle tissue to be specific. Uh, and so this is a, to use a word I, I, I do tend to default to frequently is nuanced question. Can you lose body weight, all right, and gain muscle mass at the same time? And the general answer is no, and the nuanced answer is sometimes yes, but most of the time no. 
If you are very, very overweight and very, very undertrained, there's a significant period of time where you'll be able to train and get stronger, which we already said could occur even if you were losing weight, but then also build new lean body mass, new skeletal muscle tissue. Um, and so, yes, you can at that time both lose weight and gain muscle at the same time um, in that certain demographic. However, if you're not really mo morbidly obese or very, very overweight, yeah, or if you're not very, very undertrained, uh, it's uh, almost an impossibility uh, to gain muscle mass and lose weight at the same time. And, and you'll, if you'll think about it, it, it's pretty straightforward why. If you are eating in such a way where the net, situa the net situation in the body is to build new tissue, all right? which includes muscle mass, then your body weight is going up. Just by definition, if the net systemic situation is anabolic, you are going to gain weight. All right. If the net, similarly, uh, if the net systemic situation in the body is catabolic because you're losing body weight, then it's almost an impossibility that you're simultaneously also gaining muscle mass. All right. It, it just, you're, you're basically saying, uh, that you can select specifically for the muscles to grow and then specifically for the fat to be lost. And unfortunately, our bodies, while very, very refined and have a, a lot of, you know, protective mechanisms, they, they you know, we're, they're, they're kind of simple from this regard. If, if overall, at the end of the day, the sum of your calories in versus calories out uh, are negative, you're losing weight and it's very hard to accrue new tissue, in, which includes muscle tissue, under that situation, unless again, you're very, very overweight and very, very undertrained. Um, but that shores up in a few weeks. And I, you know, I don't think that that one particular fact should dissuade somebody who's very, very overweight from undergoing strength training. Because what they might hear from this is that, oh, so you're saying that my progression on a program like starting strength, uh, the starting strength novice linear progression is gonna be uh, not as robust as it otherwise would be if I were gaining weight. You're saying that's the case, well, I don't wanna strength train. Or if they if they say if they hear that you're saying I can't gain new muscle mass and that's something I really wanted to do even though I am very very overweight you're saying I shouldn't you know diet or 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 do strength training well that's I, I don't think that that's a uh, that you should take that away from this what you should understand is that you know hey being in a very very overweight situation um, with regards to where you start your training is not optimal but where else are you going to start. You don't get to choose necessarily where you start, right? You know, uh, so if you're undertaking this 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 journey uh, of strength training and you happen to be in this very very overweight category, well, you know, I, I think it's a reasonable suggestion to start out by losing weight, and the best way to retain muscle mass is going to be through resistance training. And again, I don't think anyone would argue with that, uh, and that's going to do a whole bunch of things. So one, you're still going to get stronger. That's cool. Two, uh, be, by not losing muscle mass, your metabolic situation is going to be much, much better. And that's not because muscles burn uh, tons of calories compared to fat or other tissues, but mainly be how you deal with stuff like sugar, how you deal with, you know, partition, are able to partition uh, uh, your dietary intake, a handful of things. And uh, adipokines uh, uh, are being decreased. So adipokines are hormones released from the fat tissue. And then there are myokines that by retaining muscle mass, those are going to be useful for a handful of things. Those are hormones released from the muscle tissue. So um, strength training, I, if I had a, a morbidly obese person come in and say, hey, look, I want to lose weight. How do I do it? Well, one, we're making a big dietary intervention, all right? And we're using strength training, not only to uh, add a little activity to that, but also as a positive feedback loop 
to being compliant on the nutrition. Because what's the hardest part about a diet? I mean, at base, at base level, the hardest part about any diet is compliance, sticking with it. Okay, so if you can get somebody super motivated to stick with the diet, well, you're going to succeed. They're going to succeed. And I found through my practice that the easiest way to do that uh, by tools that I have available to myself are, are to get them very, very involved at the, in the gym. And so if you can get somebody who's going to come in and add weight to the bar on a regular basis and feel like they're learning a new skill, they're learning how to squat, how to deadlift, how to press, how to bench, and they're becoming proficient, self-proficient, uh, self-efficacious at these sort of things, then they want to do the diet. They're like, hey, I'm getting better at this. I should definitely do this. That's great. Um, you know, the other thing is <laughs> I found post-training that particularly people in the novice progression, they aren't ravenous like they are if they were to go do two hours of cardio, right? You know, two hours of cardio, uh, and actually a funny side story I'll come back to, and where they're drenched with sweat or whatever, and they come home and they're like, oh man, I just did a really hard effort at the gym. I need to reward myself or I need to refuel or whatever. And in general, it's much easier to like replace, uh, over replace all those calories uh, than, than, you know, stick to the diet in that situation because you are just ravenous and you're dehydrated and you need to figure out a way uh, to, uh, your brain is tricking you and saying, Hey, you need to eat more and drink more and do all this other stuff to, to replenish. But then you end up overshooting. I don't find that to be the case with, uh, with strength training. Um, just in general, it just doesn't feel quite, uh, as depleting. Uh, I know that's kind of a nebulous term, but, uh, as, as doing a hard cardio effort. And, and, and again, let's, let's use the dad story. I like dad jokes. So let's do the dad story. The dad, you know, I, I call my dad and mind you, my father, uh, he's had a knee replacement, uh, about a year and a half ago and recently deadlifted, like I think it was 385 or 395 for a set of five. So we got him in the gym. All right. But prior to that, prior to that, you know, you call him, hey, dad, you know, you're still exercising, you know, he's tra still training. What's up? He's like, nah, nah, you know, it's summertime. So I just, uh, cut the grass today and yeah, that's a pretty good workout. <laughs> Well, because you're outside, it's hot, right? You sweat a little bit and you feel like you really kind of exerted yourself. But the only reason you feel this, we'll call it fatigue, right, mm -hmm. is because the heat and you sweat it, you lost sweat, you lost electrolytes, you lost fluids, right? And so all these things internally, how they, how the brain and how our, our, our you know, our physiology is going to um, uh, make us correct for that are, oh, hey, we're low on salt. Let's go eat a bunch of things. Uh, hey, we're, you know, we're low on this. Let's go eat a bunch of things. And, and let, we don't care if we overshoot because we want to protect ourselves from going too low. And uh, that's actually been well validated in other applications, including sporting applications. So if you have uh, a miler, all right, so this, this miler, they're, you know, they've trained uh, for months and months and months. Their best mile time, let's say, is four and a half minutes or whatever. And it was set in early spring, no humidity, it was 60 degrees outside, nice, you know, good temperature, no wind. Um, and they train for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then they go to retest in the summer. It's 85 degrees and 75% humidity. And they're like, I'm about to PR my mile. And they probably won't. Or if they do, the PR is less than it actually would be if the temperature and humidity and everything was the same as it previously was. And it's not because the last 200 or 400 is slow. It, they start out slower from the jump. And it's because the body's like, oh, it's hot out here. It's humid out here. I don't want to go to that danger zone. And so by hook or by crook, I'm going to make, I'm going to protect myself. And that's kind of what we do dietarily when we lose a bunch of salt and lose a bunch of fluids. We go, you know, we're thirstier than we should be. And thirst is a late signal towards that we need to rehydrate anyway. Uh, you know, we're like, oh, I need a bunch of stuff with a bunch of sodium, which does tend to be calorie packed. So, you know, I do think that that, that advising, so I just do cardio. 
well, one, is not necessarily supported by evidence, and then two, I feel like has a, is not as good as that positive feedback loop that we see from lifting. Um, so yeah, we may be compromising their end strength goals at the end, or their end strength outcomes at the, at, at the tail end of starting strength linear progression or similar program. Uh, sure, we may not build as much muscle mass, but hey, you know what? The morbidly obese person's already got a good amount of muscle mass on them just by carrying around that weight and having to move that too. Um, so ultimately, I think in the interest of health and the interests of uh, uh, you know, self-improvement, then I would not advise uh, uh, an obese or morbidly obese person to gain weight just to get a better, you know, a better squat at the end of their novice progression. Uh, I wouldn't advise that, even though I know that they would have gained more strength if they would have gained weight. Right? It's just not a good trade-off. It's not a good trade-off, in my opinion. And and you know, uh, at, at the end of the day, I think that we do have to do that sort of risk-benefit analysis. And I think that's pretty well established. That's tipped towards losing weight if you are in that demographic. Yeah. Uh- it makes a lot of sense. I, uh, I, I really liked what you said about compliance uh, because it's kind of like the example of the kid who goes and buys some whey protein and says, man, I bought this whey protein six months ago and I, I gained 30 pounds. But what you didn't see is that now he's going to the gym. Now he's taking his eating seriously. So, yep. yeah, yep. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, one more thing I'll, I'll <laughs> say on that, and, and that's, you know, people will poo-poo on the training industry in general, including yours truly. I've definitely done that. But <laughs> – Think about the why trainers are successful at getting their clients' results. I mean, you have these people spend money to another person the, who's supposed to be the expert, even if they're not very good, but they're more likely to be compliant, they're more likely to show up, they're more likely to make other changes that they perceive as being healthy. And, you know, are they, is it optimal? I mean, you know, no, probably not, but, but there's something to be said about compliance improvers and i think leveraging those as much as possible uh, particularly in weight loss situations uh is one one of the keys to the city if you will uh yeah. for, for health for health so let's let's uh on a side note before i forget this uh with regards to training uh i've experienced myself training others uh overweight individuals and then a lot of overweight individuals have said something to me uh an example to keep it simple would be i'm doing starting strength uh, and I have, because I'm, you know, 40% body fat and I weigh 350 pounds, it's really hard for me to get depth. So I'm just going to stay where I'm at at, at 75 pounds in the bar. And I'm just going to kind of try to work on depth or when I deadlift, uh, it's really hard for me to keep the bar over my the middle of my foot because I'm so big. So it's over my toes. Uh, so what would you tell one of those individuals who just doesn't want to put weight on the bar because they can't really perform it perfectly? Yeah. So I think you end up going into, there's basically two choices. So choice number one is altering, alter, well, this is the same, you know, it, it's a different option, but the same, the same kind of side. So you can alter technique in order to allow someone to reach the criteria that we, you know, put up for each movement. So that is, they, maybe they need a wider stance, maybe they need to move the bar up their back, stay more vertical, or maybe, you know, some other different type of squat that you can load incrementally, um, you know, uh, where they can get below parallel. All right. Uh, or, you know, if they can't modify the form, uh, or if they can't get coached in the correct position, uh, and the options, uh, then, then basically you say, well, you can't squat right now. Right. And, 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 and then in that case, in that case, you're basically trying to, you know, they can leg press. Yeah. And, and you know, I think at that point though, if, if you, if someone is, is of the size where they can't squat or figure out a way to deadlift, uh, effectively, that is 
loadable for a, ser a period of time um, due to their body habitus, then you have effectively defined them as a person who strength training is of secondary concern. We're gonna do a little bit of strength training because we're in the gym. We know that's good for them, particularly from a metabolic standpoint, glucose disposal standpoint, compliance standpoint, as we previously discussed. But we're gonna use, we're gonna default to less effective methods, and we're gonna have to do conditioning. Um, and I think that you've effectively you've just ruled them in to say right now conditioning and losing weight is more important than anything that can happen on the barbell. And and until they can actually squat below parallel. Now, that all being said, I have coached people over 400 pounds to squat below parallel and pull from the floor. Uh, one of them uh, had to pull sumo. That was fine. Uh, and another person pulled from the floor. Their back didn't look perfect, but it didn't look dangerous either. And I think, you know, during this novice phase, you're, you're starting out relatively light. Uh, the challenge is to maintain technique for most folks who have previously never trained anyway. So you have some room in four weeks for a person for that 400 pound person. You know, if you can get them to buy into the diet and everything else, think how much weight you could actually have them lose. You know, this isn't a person where you're trying to do the one to two pounds per week. If you're doing the one to two pounds per week for that particular person, uh, you think that's slow. That's yeah. too slow for them. That's too slow for them. And, uh, in any event, I think that if you can't, if there's no way to do the movement correctly to this right standard, then you have to sub the exercise and you've, you've effectively ruled yourself in uh, for conditioning being more important. So what kind of conditioning? If you have a prowler, that's great. If you had a sled, that's great. If you don't, if you're at a commercial gym, well, you're limited by your resources and then recumbent bike's going to be better than anything else that they have available there because you can't put them on a rower. The rowers do have weight limits and, and you know, you don't want to lose a client because they broke the rower. That's, you know, I mean, that's one of the, how do you get people to never come back to the gym, have them break something due to their body weight? And I, the messed up thing is I've seen this happen. So the concept two rowers, the last time I checked, were rated to 250 pounds. And there was a person in there close to 400 pounds who, while rowing, the thing just buckled. Oh, my God. I know. And so, you know, you're, you're thinking, you're like, wow, how do I convince this person to come back to the gym? Yeah. Yeah, really. And you can't, you can't, you know. Um, but, yeah, I haven't had a situation where somebody, their body prevented them from squatting to, to depth uh, or, or pull from the floor. Um, I did have somebody who, for, they weren't the biggest person I'd ever trained, but they, yeah, it was kind of just weirdly distributed. And hopefully she's not listening, but I don't think she is. <laughs> In any event, she can only squat to parallel for about the first two months. But I was okay with that. Parallel to me, Okay. If, you know, that last little half inch isn't going to make me switch them directly over to leg press. I'll just have them do the to parallel. And then on the deadlift, I had them pull from the rack uh, about one inch above where the bar would have been. And they pulled they pulled it conventionally. And, and you know, yeah, you're compromising the range of motion of the exercise. Sure. Still productive. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, it, and it's a spectrum. So if we think about squat, regular squat, below parallel, you know, everything else, all the way to like leg extension. And this is like most productive, biggest return on investment, like smallest return on investment. Like we're just moving down and we're trying to get as close to this end as possible. Um, so yeah, it, it's been my experience and I assure you that most other people have had, I'm sure that people with way different experiences who will say, Hey, you don't know nothing, man. I had this woman who I couldn't have, you know, squat, you know, even close to parallel because of her, you know, uh, obesity and that's all right well that may be the case or or you know we need to get some more tools in your coaching toolbox and then i think maybe the situation is different so yeah uh, and you're, do you have a leg press at your gym alan yes yeah so let's say you didn't <clears throat> well, let's say you didn't 
and you're just having a tough time. Like you're like, I don't know what to do. I mean, fighting Bob's not here. I can't. We can't. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, so I think the easiest thing is you have him squat to a box and maybe the box is two inches above parallel. Right. What are you yeah. going to do? Just not, not exercise. Right. Because, you know, because it's not perfect. Like don't let perfect be the enemy of good in this situation. Let's just, we're going to err towards that spec side of the spectrum that has the biggest return on investment. And as close as we can get to it, that's as good as we can do. And, and, you know, we're going to keep working, working towards that. And as, as they start losing weight, um, then, then you can, you can start to fix things. So, so let's shift, uh, and talk a little bit about diet. <clears throat> One thing that I, that I, that I really, we have a bit, but, uh, stepping away from the training. When sure. you when you and Austin were at, the, at Untamed Strength for the workshop, and during the Q and A segment, one person asked uh, a very general question, something like, "She was she wasn't she wasn't overweight, uh, but it was, you know, yada yada yada. How much how many calories should I be eating a day uh, if I want to lose a little bit of body fat?" And your response was, "Well, I need to know how many calories you're eating right now." Um, so is that kind of the same approach? Because I can imagine that if someone who is binge eating every day, 8,000 calories a day, morbidly obese. And you said, we're going to get you on 2,200 calories. Again, that's not going to jive well with the compliance. So you might put them on like a 5,000 calorie diet, or is it like, we're just going to completely have an intervention and get rid of all this bad habit or how would you approach that? Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, interesting question because, uh, so I'll tell you what I do in practice and then kind of the things I consider along the way. So in practice, if I have somebody who is very, very overweight, and who I suspect is unlikely to be able to give me any sort of accurate nutrition information. And, and just to be fair, these are, this is not a small percentage of the population. Even the non-obese uh, or, 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 or overweight folks, just people in general have no idea what they're eating. And they, ah, I didn't track this, I didn't track that. And it ends up, you know, a, a, a very big difference between what they're actually taking in and what they report. So in any event, but for the overweight and obese people, what I will end up doing is do, uh, approaching their diet from a quality standpoint. So because if someone's binge eating on a lot of fast food or a lot of, you know, very highly processed, highly refined uh, food, food sources, I know that they have an eating habit issue. Like, like right. right off the bat, I know that one of the things is just their eating habits. And so I don't want to tell them to, all right, look, let's download my fitness pal. Let's start weighing <laughs> and measuring everything. And I'm not saying that that's a bad intervention. Right. I just found that getting somebody to do that initially is very, very difficult if they are, in fact, in that body fat of 40%, you know, in that range. It's just you're you're asking them to make too big of a step when they have not yet developed the base to start adding in uh, adding in a layer of complexity. It's, it, to me, the novice LP of eating is establish good food habits first, right? And so, yeah, some of these things aren't hyper-scientific, uh, you know, and it, it, it makes me feel a little squishy and then I have to, you know, have a, like a heart to heart, like an emotional connection. It's sometimes it makes me feel strange as a, you know, a guy who likes evidence and science and whatever. But in general, what this looks like is the first thing I say, it's single ingredient foods only. And they're like, well, what does that mean? I'm like, well, if it's got one ingredient, you can have it. And they're like, does that mean I can't make like eggs with cheese? I'm like, no, no, those are both single ingredient foods and you can mix them together, but you can't buy something that has more than one ingredient and use that. So just single ingredient foods only. All right. So uh, effectively I've eliminated all processed stuff and they're like, oh, you're you're like a no bread guy. You're like a no gluten guy. I'm like, no, I'm not a, you know, uh, anti-bread person. I'm just saying right now at this particular time in your life, let's completely change your eating habits. And the simplest intervention I can make is single ingredient foods. It's, you know, and you sort of explain what that what that is, 
And they're like, well, how often should I eat? And what should and I'm like, don't worry about any of that. Don't worry about calories. I, all I want you to do for this week is single ingredient foods only. So you go home, you go to the, the kitchen, the, the, the cupboard, and you throw out everything that doesn't have a single ingredient in it. And usually this is dramatic. I get a lot of pictures. Uh, <laughs> like, and they got to go grocery shopping. But if you think about it, a single ingredient food like sort of diet is going to look, all right, I'm going to have you know, eggs in, at, in the morning, maybe oat, with oatmeal and you know whatever, uh, maybe with some heavy whipping cream and a coffee and, and a banana or whatever. And they're like, yeah, I guess I can't have the cereal because that's got like a bunch of stuff in it. I guess I can't have, you know, these pancakes because that's the, the batter's got a bunch of stuff in it. All right. Well, so if they were eating even even eating breakfast in the first place. Right. Um, and then later on, they're like, all right, well, what do I have for lunch? I need single ingredients. Like I can put some chicken on like like a salad because that's lettuce. All right. And then I can have like like this little oils and vinegar or like, okay, I can like make this work. And then, you know, later on for dinner, they're like, all right, so I, maybe I'll do like these fish or chicken, or beef, whatever, potato. These are all single ingredient things. And so effectively you've taken somebody from a hyper refined, hyper processed, like we don't even know, you know, all the stuff that's in it to single ingredient foods. And we haven't addressed anything like here's how often you should eat. Here's what should make up every meal. You haven't really complicated with additional layers uh, of complexity. Also, this is the layers of complexity. It also is the make it rain that you could do either. You could do either. <laughs> but uh, so, so, and then, you know, I'll usually do that for one to two weeks just to kind of like make it stick in and get, make sure people really have got that down before I even start to address quantity. And I, I, I start to address quantity uh, uh, usually, usually by giving them a meal uh, number goal in general. I'll be like, let's do four meals a day. Uh, you know, or five meals a day. I kind of try to feel out if they're always hungry and that's why they eat. Uh, or if it's one of those things where they don't actually eat many meals, but they binge. Yeah. Right. So if they don't eat that many meals, but they always binge, I have, I'm like, Hey, let's just do four meals. We'll schedule them certain times. And then hopefully, you know, that that's going to work. And then if somebody's like, no, but I like to eat, I like to graze all day. Like that's my thing. I'm like, all right, well, let's do five meals a day or sit, you know, and I, I don't think that any more frequently <laughs> than five meals a day is, is, typically optimal if I, you know, all the other things being equal. But again, trying to leverage compliance more than anything else is what I really want. So yeah. in, in that same vein, have I ever told somebody to not eat breakfast and to wait till after lunch to eat? Certainly, because if I had them eat breakfast, by the time they ended up at dinner time, they would have all, they just overshot their calories. Yeah. And they're, they're for the day because they were like, well, I'm still going to eat this for dinner. So YOLO. And I'm like, well, that's not going to work. So let's like cut breakfast out and like make that a viable way for you to live your life nutritionally. Right. You know? So but I'm just adding layers of complexity. So it's quality first for this person who has no base of, of nutritional background. And then I'm going to start talking about meal frequency. And then I'm going <laughs> to after that, if I feel like we're getting pretty good results, I don't say a damn thing. Yeah. I don't touch I don't touch it because you know ultimately this is a lifestyle situation I'm not trying to com complicate it unless I need to right they might start asking questions this is what happens and I think you'll you you'll agree because you've actually coached people and you know as you get better as a coach and as you get uh, better uh, uh, these clients become better trained they start asking more questions like oh hey like you know should I be taking protein or hey like you know how many hours between meals like should I eat like is there, do you know anything about that? And so you have to get better as a coach as your clients get better questions because otherwise, yeah. you, you know, it, saying I don't know is not wrong, but, you know, you need to go find find the answer. So 
Um, once they start asking more questions, then I'll gradually just add layers of complexity in there. And, and this is in contrast to the person who contacts you and is like, hey, look, I'm eating, uh, here are my macros for the week, here's my MyFitnessPal log for like the last, <laughs> you know, six months, uh, help. You know, that's a different situation, right, than the person who's like, yeah, I don't really know what I eat. I don't eat that much. It's fine. And you yeah. look at it and you're like, yeah, well, it doesn't look like that. So, yeah. you know, we got to make a change. So uh, then let's do let's let's scale it back a bit. So we talked about someone who actually has like a psychological problem with food. They just sure. can't stop eating all day. Uh, and if we scale it back to just someone who's just generally overweight, maybe a guy's a little doughy, wants to lose some weight. And back to the workshop, I, uh, you can maybe talk about the, the method that you gave was, uh, well, first, if you, if you eat, uh, a, if you have a routine with your diet, you're eating pretty much the same thing every day. Uh, let's take three days, track that, mm -hmm. average it, and yep. then you gave a very simple uh, kind of breakdown uh, percentages of protein, carbs, and fats. And a lot of people are really drawn to that for the same reason that they're drawn to starting strength linear progression. It tells me exactly what to do. It's simple sure. to follow, uh, so I'm just gonna get on the app and do it. Uh, so, so that's why the you need 60% carbs or 60% protein in this. Uh, but talk a little bit about that, the the three day kind of tracking. Yeah. So if you uh, feel like you have pretty consistent eating habits, the idea is you can use an app like MyFitnessPal or uh, Excel spreadsheet and use a resource like uh, the USDA uh, uh, nutritional information because it's got nutritional information for everything. And you could actually tally up your calorie intake and your macronutrient intake, and that'll give you a decent baseline if you don't change anything after you start tracking. If you do, then the data is no good and we shouldn't have used it in the first place, in which case, uh, you know, calculating stuff just based on your body weight is fine. All right. But if you have a total, if you have a number, right, you've calculated this stuff in general, in general, I would have people start with about a gram per pound of body weight of protein. Okay. That, and that goes up to about 250 grams and I stop it there and then everything else just kind of pours over to the carbohydrates and then I'll have them do about a gram per pound of carbohydrates or so three, you know, three quarters. So 75, uh, 0.75 to one, a uh, gram per pound of body weight in carbohydrates, and then about a quarter uh, of their body weight in fat. In general, this is where I start, you know, plus or minus a little bit. And obviously, everybody's different, but that's just a general uh, recommendation. And there's a calculator over on my website, uh, barbellmedicine.com. It's not a calculator, just a, there's a spreadsheet with the numbers uh, because I'm not fancy enough for calculators. But uh, so, percentage wise, people always do on my Instagram lives, they're like, oh, so what percentage protein do you recommend? I'm like, I don't recommend a protein percentage because I don't know how many calories you're taking in, right? So, for like if Alan's eating 5,000 calories a day and I tell him to eat 30% protein, you know, that's 1,500 calories from protein. And, you know, that ends up working out to the, you know, 370 something, like a large amount of protein. It's like 350 grams, 370. My math is escaping me now. Yeah. Forgive me. Forgive me all my past math, math teachers. And that's way too much. But, but if there's a female who's eating, who's eating 1500 calories a day, right? And then maybe I say 30% and well, now that's 450 calories total. And so, you know, maybe that's 120 or whatever, 115 grams of protein. So maybe it's not, maybe it's not right. So I don't use percentages. I don't know. Uh, are they vegan? Are they vegetarian? How old are they? Like the, all these things matter, you know, and I, I, I know that I'm long winded. So you signed yourself up for this just as oh, this an FYI. <laughs> uh, there's some guy was trolling me on Twitter. He's like, you know, you 
bleep and bleep idiot and you stupid piece of, you know, all these very vulgar things to try to make the point that I'm an idiot forever suggesting that one gram per pound body weight of protein is necessary. And I will be explicitly clear. I've never said that it's necessary because necessary for what? Necessary for life. If you're an adult, it's like 40 grams, 45 grams of protein per day is necessary for life. Okay. Necessary for optimal protein, uh, uh, muscle protein synthesis and recovery from exercise. Well, that's going to be a huge spectrum. The younger, more male, less vegan you are, all right, the less protein that you need. That being said, the more calories that you're taking in from, especially from energy sources like carbohydrates and fats, well, your trace protein intake is going to grow monumentally. If you got a guy who's eating 5,000 calories a day, he may get 100, 120 grams of protein from non-animal sources just through eating all those calories. And so your total protein intake may in fact be greater than one gram per pound of body weight just because you have to allow for all of those extra trace proteins to take to come in. All right. And so then you're like, well, why do I need protein in the first place anyway? What's the point? And it's like, well, you have to have BCAAs in each meal to really trigger that muscle protein synthesis response, okay? And, and, and you know, there's going to be a biochemist somewhere out there right now who's like getting super, you know, he's, he's, he's jerking off to this. He's like, oh, God, I'm about, to, I'm about to ruin Feigenbaum. And so, look, when I say BCAAs, I'm talking about valine, leucine, and isoleucine, all right? And there is some decent evidence, in my opinion, that most adults respond very, very well to three grams or so of leucine per meal, okay? That's about the amount of leucine per meal that we've found to maximize muscle protein synthesis. And above that, eh, you don't need. And below that, eh, unless you're really sensitive to amino acids, so you're a young male who's eating animals, um, then uh, you can get away with a little less. But when you go lower than that, you're relying on some black magic, from carbohydrates uh, to effectively push you over the edge for muscle protein synthesis. And does that happen? Yeah, we've got some evidence that shows that it does, but I wouldn't you know, rely on that for all of my meals. So what, that's a long way of saying that, yes, it's true. If you're eating 5,000 calories per day and a big amount of that's coming from carbohydrates and fat, that you, you, know, you can use lower protein um, per meal. Uh, you almost certainly will, but I don't know if I'd actually decrease somebody's protein intake for the day to take advantage of that. I would just know that a bunch of trace proteins are coming in from their carbohydrate and fat sources, uh, not necessarily say, hey, yeah, you don't need to eat protein at every meal. Like that, you know, I, I would never say that. So, yeah, I just, I, I don't even know what we were talking about. I said the word masturbate, and then I got, I got freaked out. Uh, <laughs> we were talking about uh, per, percentages. Uh, oh, yeah, so, so or, I, don't, I just don't use them. I just don't use yeah. them, right? I, and I don't, I don't because, again, the context matters. So, but the general recommendation I do is a gram per pound of protein and carb per, uh, per pound body weight, start there, and a quarter for fat. Uh, and, and you can use that without calculating your calories. Uh, if you do have your calorie total, I'd still start at a gram per pound body weight of protein. It's a decent, re- reasonable recommendation. I would start at about the same, you know, three quarter to one gram per pound body weight of carbs and the rest fat. Make that up. That's where you'll start. And after two weeks, you'll know. You'll know what's happening. If you're losing weight, then we've somehow happened upon a good, you know, we changed your macros around enough uh, at, a, at a similar calorie level that you're losing weight or more likely you are tracking inaccurately and we <laughs> put you in a calorie restricted state and now you're losing weight. And if you didn't lose any weight or if you gained weight, guess what you have to do? Well, you're going to pull carbs and fat down. That's, that's what you're going to do. You're just decreasing the amount of calories in. And that's what I would do first versus adding a bunch of conditioning or extra training. 
Um, I wouldn't add a bunch of extra stuff, particu particularly in folks who have not been training for a long period of time, because I think that they can uh, really, really introduce too much fatigue to themselves if they previously don't have a big training base versus just pulling some extra cows. That's that's kind of that's where I go uh, and with that fork in the road. So I'm pretty sure that's the same advice I gave to the guy. I don't know. I assume that he's really ripped right now. Yeah, I bet. So what I'm gathering is you're not uh, a huge fan of percentages, but possibly you you like the uh, RPE approach to diet. I was that... <laughs> uh, uh, nailed it. Mike, Mike to share for nutrition. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Uh, well, should we move on to some of these questions? Uh, yeah. I've got a few. Um, okay. And I'm sure you can pick and choose which ones you'd like to answer. Uh, so let's just get this one out of here because it's, Every single uh, podcast you've done with Austin, you guys answer this. Sure. Every time you're on Instagram Live, you answer this. Uh, keto diet for strength training. That's just, and it's not even, a, that's just the, and then a question mark. Keto diet yeah. for strength training, question mark. Thoughts on keto, question mark. <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's first, let's first discuss the meaning of life and then we can, no. Um, so ketogenic, yeah, so ketogenic diets, you know, and for those who are unaware, please use the Google machine. Um, but very low carbohydrate diet and also lower protein uh, intake. Uh, it's much lower than what I would recommend for a strength training athlete. Um, I have had very, very bad experiences with them and people who are after performance improvements. And I think this happens for multiple reasons. Reason number one, a hypocaloric state without good energy resources for training. And what I mean by that is strength training is almost almost entirely anaerobic, all right? It is reliant on your creatine phosphate energy system and reliant on your anaerobic glycolytic system to create energy to train, all right? And when a ketogenic diet, you're not running on those. Your muscle glycogen stores don't really get depleted that much in training unless you're doing a bunch of like anaerobic intervals or like long, long endurance efforts. And I don't think anybody who's listening to your stuff is uh, doing that, you know, so that's the simple bro exp explanation for why keto is not very good for strength training is, oh, you're just depleting your glycogen, bro. Uh, well, so muscle glycogen never contributes to blood glucose levels. It's not like your blood glucose goes down and then it starts sucking out glucose that's been stored in your muscles. That doesn't happen. All right, uh, gly liver glycogen gets broken back down into glucose, which enters the bloodstream to maintain blood glucose levels. That's how you maintain your blood sugar when you don't take any dietary carbohydrates in. And at the same time, the liver also starts pumping out a bunch of glucose as well, about 100, 150 grams a day, which ultimately either maintains blood sugar or gets stored in the muscles if there was a, a significant amount of depletion. So in a 48-hour period, let's say you did a, a squats, bench, deadlift on day one, 48 hours later, you'll see no muscle glycogen depletion, even if you're on a ketogenic diet. So I don't necessarily think that that's a huge mechanism for why uh, it doesn't, doesn't necessarily work out that well. I think more so you're not really fueling training very well. Uh, another component is uh, there is some evidence suggesting body water loss. So intravascular volume of, of fluid tends to decrease on ketogenic diets uh, particularly rapidly uh, in the initial week or two. Um, and we know that hydration status is intimately related to uh, uh, muscle protein synthesis. And so what the, the very close listener is now thinking, like, well, Jordan, you told me that I can't grow new muscle while I'm dieting anyway. So why do I, why do I care about muscle protein synthesis 
uh, when I'm dieting, okay? Why, should, why don't I just do keto? I haven't heard a downside yet. Well, if you're compromising muscle protein synthesis while you're cutting calories, while you're losing weight, your recovery is even further behind, okay? If your muscle protein synthesis isn't up to snuff, that means that even your training session uh, that was already going to be compromised from a recovery state is now even further compromised because you're not able to remodel and rebuild that tissue uh, like you previously would even on a hypo at a hypocaloric state and your hydration status in the level of the muscle cell is also compromised. And so a dehydrated muscle cell cannot be anabolic. And in fact, that is one of the ways that creatine works. Creatine increases intramuscular water and because it makes the mus the, the, the uh, uh, cell be very well hydrated, that is an, in and of itself a stimulus for muscle hypertrophy uh, and uh, muscle protein synthesis. So if you're compromising all those things just from a dietary intervention and you're losing weight, all right, uh, because you're in a hypocaloric state, all of those things are setting you up for, for uh, a failure with regards to strength training. Um, and then finally, think of a situation where the blood glucose it, your body has to work very hard to maintain your blood glucose level, all right, because you're not taking any in, in any dietary carbohydrates, right? And we know that a small percentage of the brain runs only on glucose um, and a small part of the heart as well, all right? And we also know that your muscle glycogen levels don't contribute to maintaining the sugar level. The liver does only. An adaptive effect of that is to make your peripheral tissue a little less sensitive to glucose, because it doesn't want you to suck up all that glucose out of the blood. Because if it did, you don't have any other like, oh shit, bad things are happening, safety mechanisms. You've effectively exhausted it by using your liver to do it. So there's some in evidence that there you get a little bit of peripheral insulin resistance with very low carb or ketogenic dieting. Um, to a, what clinical effect, I don't think that there are any. However, the muscle remodeling and muscle protein synthesis uh, uh, cascade requires insulin. Now, more, more insulin doesn't necessarily make it more robust, um, but certainly does require insulin functioning well to allow that to occur. Uh, and again, you can look at diabetic patients who are insulin resistant, and they do not see the same amount of muscle protein synthesis from a given training bout as their non-diabetic age-matched uh, individuals. So it, it's very interesting to me. Okay. But here's what you need to know, right? Who, what world champion, you know, strength athletes are going keto uh, and, and developed their strength that way. Right. Right. This is the same argument for vegan vegetarianism. It's not that you can't be strong and be a vegan or a vegetarian. It's not that you can't, it's just that you don't get there that way. And if you did, you had other stuff that's more responsible for your strength gain getting you there. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, well. So, so you know, again, we know that getting strong is not purely about nutrition. Right. Everybody knows that. So, so when people say, "Yeah, well, so and so is strong and they're a vegan," it's like, okay, like I don't know. What do you want me to do with that information? Like. Did, were they always a vegan? They were born a vegan. They've never had any protein. Like, what else have they done for their training? Like, Ilya decided he was going to be a vegetarian, right? Ilya, Ilya, the, you know, 994 kilo, right? And everyone's like, look at that. Oh, my God, he's going to be a vegan. It's like, do you not see the multiple confounders in this situation, <laughs> right? This is, a, and I'll do my last sort of tangent to this. This is like when people talk about CrossFitters saying that, oh, yeah, well, look at so-and-so. They're CrossFitter and they're, you know, strong and, you know, super conditioned. I want to be like that. And it's like 
CrossFit didn't build that. Right. CrossFit identified that via selective pressures mm -hmm. to get those people in the sport to make money. Yeah. That's how sports work. Okay. Yeah. That's why that's why the best athletes in the United States end up playing American football, even though they would be track studs or or you know good powerlifters <laughs> or great powerlifters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which and. and I, I lied to you. This is not my last aside. But there is a question on here that talks about what is the best height or so weight per inch of height for powerlifting. I had made this uh, uh, other podcast and I discussed that I ran some data analysis of the last few years of CrossFit, the CrossFit cohorts and male and women and came up with like a, a pound per inch of body height, right? So men on average were about, it's like 2.8 to 2.9 and women were about 2.2 pounds per inch of body height. Uh, and the interesting thing was this, so like the heavier females were in the higher, the highest quartile, like the heavier they were on average, they did a little bit better. So whatever. And men, I had, a, had the opposite response, but I think there's a bunch of confounding data in there. In any event, people were like, oh, well, what is it for powerlifting? I'm like, we don't know. And here's why we don't know, because we haven't even tipped the iceberg with the real genetic freaks getting into powerlifting right. because there's not enough money in it. Mm -hmm. The selective pressures have not yet acted to a significant degree to have enough uh, uh, sort of, uh, as to use a word that my grandma would use, uh, gestalt uh, to, <laughs> to, to, really, to really suss that out. Uh, at some point when they're paying $100,000 for a victory at nationals, maybe we will. Yeah. Uh, with the final caveat being, I do actually think that CrossFit, the CrossFit women's division does represent the most amount of selective pressures for female sports that are not anthropometry based. And so I'll clear all of that up because you can make so much money and there's so much power and, you know, uh, fame and whatever by winning the CrossFit games as a female athlete, right? With effectively no other options for them to do besides like golf or professional tennis or MMA, but you have to be an outstanding female athlete in any one of those, right. uh, uh, you effectively selected for the best female athletes who aren't gonna, who couldn't play in the WNBA or don't have those other skill sets. You effectively have pooled all female athletes, and it's incredible. They're, they're, I, 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 you know, I am impressed every day by seeing what the females can do there. We haven't done that yet for males because we have the other sports. But that's how you can come up with the weight, height uh, sort of stuff. We just haven't selected for you in powerlifting because we're really a bunch of NASCAR-loving rednecks, which I'm, which I'm fine with. Which I'm fine with. Powerlifting competitions are too long anyways. That's true. That's true. That's why that's, you got to bring a cooler with Coors Light yep. and, uh, and your best friend with a beard that looks like yours. So we have, we have answered uh, all in that keto discussion. We've answered thoughts on CrossFit. <laughs> uh, and we answered, what should I eat during my powerlifting meet, my first powerlifting meet? Uh, so yeah. ice, yeah, ice chest full of Coors. And, uh, that's, what, that's it. <laughs> well, somebody asked about Chris Duffin's like whiskey and deadlift thing, right? So alcohol, uh, it was either the first or the second like uh, purported ergogenic aid that the old Greeks used to use. It was either it was alcohol first and then strychnine, like the poison, or vice, <laughs> or vice versa. I, I never remember. Uh, but in general, people will perform most tasks uh, worse when alcohol is introduced to the system, unless unless it's a performance anxiety-based thing, in which case there are some people who do better and other people who do worse. The results overall are equivocal, uh, which is why like the people get nervous getting on a flight. It doesn't work universally for them to you know have a drink. They're still anxious. 
right? But if you're anxious about your deadlift because your training went poorly, no amount of whiskey is going to help you. The, the best way to be confident in a meet is to have a coach who knows what they're doing help you out and be confident in the plan and have good training going into it. If you don't have those things, I get, maybe just get drunk. Like, just get drunk. I, I feel like that's the best option. Yeah. And, 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 and realize that a, a 200 kilo squat uh, at any weight class is still just a 200 kilo squat. So nobody really cares. So no, nobody if you can, cares. Yeah, if you can get over that, uh, you'll have a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. Once once you realize that nobody cares, then there's nothing to be embarrassed about. Yep. People don't uh, even know what weight's on the bar anyways at their first meet. Like, that's what I'm saying. Nobody knows how much, you know, nobody looks at the board. <laughs> I sent a, yeah, I sent a picture to my grandma of like the, the 725 back in 2014. So this is the humble brag. No, uh, so in 2014, I sent her the, the picture of me deadlifting 725. Yeah. And she goes, she goes, how much is that? It doesn't look like that much. And I was like, yeah, girl, she's a stone, stone cold killer. Just like she's trolling me from afar. Yeah, but, I, uh, I, uh, I can make the joke to my mom. I could say, yeah, mom, uh, tonight I deadlifted 100 pounds and she'll still have the, oh, my, you need to be careful. Like she doesn't know. Don't hurt yourself. She doesn't know what 100 pounds or 600 pounds is. That's, yeah, that's the thing. I actually do think that's why Olympic weightlifting is, you know, still such a fringe sport, even though the display of athleticism, the display of athleticism is insane. But people are like, they don't know. Like yeah. a, a 210 kilo snatch, like you could say any number. They'd be like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I had a guy sit to me at the bar. Like I saw that he was wearing nanos and I was like, oh, you work out. That's, that was my pickup line. Uh, <laughs> he goes, he goes, yeah, coaches have me, you know, prep for the games this year, trying to go to the CrossFit Games. You ever heard of it? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's like pretty big. <laughs> it's like trying to get my snatch up, trying to get my snatch up, you know, right? Like 400 pounds, I think, is what I need to snatch, I think, to, to be competitive. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, 400 pounds snatch. Like, you know, I know. I was right like, on. I was like, I don't look big enough for people to know that I lift, I guess, like to know that that's a ridiculous statement. But anyway, yeah, that's the general public when it comes to weight. They're like, is that a lot? I don't even know. Like, what's the, what's the, so. so back to these diet questions. I'll, I'll get off one more. It'll probably be a quick one because I think I know the answer. And then you could uh, answer some of yours. So sure. why is the traditional bodybuilder diet? And I don't even know if you're uh, credible on this because you've never done a show. It's true. Uh, but we'll see what your answer is anyways. Why is a traditional bodybuilding diet, uh, chicken breasts and, and rice and broccoli and egg whites and oatmeal, uh, a very low-fat diet? Yeah. So, one, I don't actually know if that's true. Like, I do think that we all, when we say bodybuilding diet, everyone yeah. thinks egg, egg whites, oatmeal, chicken, rice, broccoli, mm -hmm. and whey, and like cottage cheese for some reason and then like <laughs> i don't know so yeah so i don't know if that's true and i certainly do think that probably a lot of the old school bodybuilders that's just that's what they would eat or a bunch of fish and rice or something like that um but i do think what you'll find is that most people who are cutting uh and trying to get to a very low body fat end up going low fat first and then cutting carbs and uh, there's some evidence that suggests that over longer term, so like 24 weeks, I think was the study, showed that moderate carb, lower fat actually had better body fat loss than low carb, higher fat. Hmm. And I think the most, the, the biggest reason why is this, it's harder to count fat than it is carbs. I, like we sense. know that there's no metabolic advantage to going low carb, high fat, like this, that doesn't exist, that's stupid, like there's not. So. Nah. All right. But, but you think about it like this, like when you're trying to get peanut butter out of the, 
the thing, you know, is that one tablespoon? Is that two tablespoons? <laughs> two and a half? Did you lick a little off the top? You know, how much oil did you put in there? Like, and so I think, you know, in practical application, why do I defer towards lower fat diet? Like, it's certainly because I think the compliance is a little bit better. And I think, I don't actually think that bodybuilders really eat that way. Bodybuilders that I know, figure competitors that I know, they just start, they starve. Yeah. A lot legit starve and what they eat just, it makes me sad really for humanity. And I, <laughs> It is true. I've never done a show. I've, I've only coached a handful of uh, figure uh, or bikini folks, and that's oh, like, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird thing to like or to get into, and I'm just like, one, <laughs> I don't really know if this is a sport, and then two, like, uh, I I don't know if you're paying the right guy to do this for you because I'm not involved enough in that sport to get you the victory. Like there's so many politics about like, I'm not the guy, I'm just a doctor over here. Like I, you know, like, like I, I'm, I'm good if you want to get strong, if you want to get healthy, if you want to win a show, you need to hire somebody who's paid the right person or knows the right person who's going to get you the victory. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's not me. So don't hire me for your bodybuilding stuff. <laughs> um, I'll, okay. I'll put this one out there for you. Farb the bear Jew, my good friend, Josh. Uh, let me just yeah. say that LA is filled with people of the Hebrew descent. And I happened upon this gym to see him there. And I was very upset that I wasn't the only Jew. So in any event, Deuce Jim, uh, Deuce Jim. Yeah, I know. he says, he says, look at the long hair. I guess that's when you had longer hair. You, no. Oh, so can I ask you a personal question? Yes. When are you, when are you gonna have a mullet? <laughs> this is close enough, right? I, I think so. that's why that gave me the, yeah, no, look, you should like a, Okay. Well, the, untamed, I do nothing to it. No trim, no nothing, except the mustache. That's the only thing I'll tame. Right, you got to keep that lined up. <clears throat> right. Yeah, yeah, you don't want it in your food. Uh, okay, we'll do a few real a few real questions. Let's see. Uh, question for Jordan. Assuming someone's in a moderately high surplus of calories from whole foods and protein intake is adequate, does it matter if fats and carbs are equal? Uh, or should one endeavor to have preference to a higher percentage of one over the other? If so, when and why? Uh, so there's a couple problems with this question. <laughs> what do you mean by equal fats and carbs? Do you mean calories from fats and carbs or do you mean actual macronutrient intake or do you mean percentage of calories? Like there are so many different ways you can skin yeah. that, but the ultimate answer is no. Like, no, you shouldn't aim to have the same fats and carbs. If I had to bias myself one way or another, I would say I usually bias myself towards a lower fat situation and more carbs for a training population. Right. And I already said that our the anaerobic considerate considerations for strength training uh, are significantly higher. We should have carbs on board to do that. So if you put a gun in my head to Jordan, where should most of my carbs uh, come into play? I would say pre and post workout. Now, in that same breath, I'm not a post workout bro. Your post workout lasts for about 48 hours after you finish training. And what I mean by post workout window is elevation of muscle protein synthesis rates. So do you need to go home and rush and get that, that 30 minute anabolic window? No, no, you should eat about three hours after the meal you had prior to training, and that's about as soon as you should eat. And if it stretches out to five hours, that's fine, but you're not going to lose your anabolic window. You know, just, just like the guy shooting up a growth hormone, secretog or insulin in the parking lot thinks he's going to miss his, his you know, anabolic window. And it's like, bro, we've got so many problems here, we don't, I don't even know where to start. Um, Let's see, another quick question. Any downsides with eating 10 eggs a day as the primary protein source in the diet for months? The answer to that is yes. Not because eggs are bad. Oh, got you. But because if you think that 10 eggs a day as a primary protein source, you're messing up. Because that's only 60 grams of protein if you ate them whole. So that's the main protein source. We have problems. All right. <laughs> 
But uh, there's actually a case report, uh, 1974, I believe, published. I forget the actual journal, but a guy who ate 25 whole eggs a day, every day, and no change in his cholesterol panel, which is like the ultimate F you to anybody who ever talked about dietary cholesterol. And it's like, stop talking about that, please. Yeah. Uh, but but with that, I have a question now. Does okay. uh, dietary cholesterol... Uh, five gram, five uh, uh, grams of cholesterol is going to affect you differently than it's going to affect me. Yes. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a, there's a spectrum, but although I would say that the uh, overall the evidence suggests that dietary cholesterol is of minimal importance to cholesterol levels in yeah. human. Overall, yeah. I would say that. <clears throat> How do you get stronger without gaining a lot of fat? You, Dr. Baraki, and other powerlifters need to stay in a weight class but continue to get stronger. That's debatable. How is that possible <laughs> if you have to gain weight to get stronger? Well, I think we already answered that you don't actually have to gain weight to get stronger in general. However, and Alan, this will happen upon you very soon. I actually think this is probably a good question to, to cut it at. There will come a point where you're unable to get any stronger at your current body weight. And then you have to make a decision. You'd say, self, do I want to be the best power lifter that I can be? In which case, you have to optimize your body weight in relative in relation to your strength levels and the competition, right? So if I wanted to be the best power lifter I could be, given the current competitive state, I would not be a 93 kilo lifter. Why? Well, uh, Jesse Norris is always going to be better than me. If John Hack misses his weight class, he's going to be better than me, right? I need to move up. But then I got to deal with Bryce Lewis. I'm like, oh, well, crap. Uh, you know, he's a little shorter than me. He's been training for a little longer. Like, do I stay there and play, play second fiddle to Bryce or whoever else comes up? Or do I need to be a one, you know, 110 uh, guy and, and battle with Tuscher and Cornelius, Dennis Cornelius and all that other stuff? And you start thinking it like that. Then you kind of find out like, well, yeah, I'll get stronger. Of course I'll get stronger. But will you get strong enough to be more competitive? It depends. This is why women's sport, like women's sports that are not competitive, like powerlifting in general, have such a wide variety of body body spreads. Because you'll see a person like Jennifer Thompson, who's a 132. She's not very big, but she you know she does very very well. And everyone's like, see, you don't have to be big to be strong. It's like this is the girl who pressed bench pressed 258 her first meet. Yeah. Her first meet, 258, right? Like, so so something else is going on, and maybe let's not use the outliers to prove our point. Like, you just have to, you'll have to analyze, how competitive am I right now? What does the, 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 uh, the weight class look like, and do I need to go up? But you will always get stronger when you gain weight. You may not be more competitive, but gaining weight will make you stronger. So as a competitive powerlifter, though, you have to take into consideration what everyone else is doing, what weight classes they're in. And Alan, I think you're taller than I am, so... You're what, six foot, six one, six foot, six foot. You, yep. You've eclipsed, you've eclipsed the barrier where you actually don't have to be successful to get a date. So, you, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so you know, you'd be a two two seventy five or two sixty four would likely be your optimal weight class for just pure strength. Does yep. that make you more competitive than at two forty two? Well, kind of depends who's competing, right? Uh, so, at some point, you will have to make the decision: Am I willing to go that far? Uh, and I think to answer this guy's question, just, what do you want to do? Do you want to be the strongest dude ever? Or do you just want to, you know, do you want to get to a certain level and say that's good? Because that's what I, that's what I've been doing since 2014. I'm like this little 198 guy and I want to get stronger, but not bad enough to gain weight and, and you know, maybe scare some people. So it's not for me. I'm also afraid of uh, growing out of all the clothes that I have right now. Because, yeah, that's like a real problem, though, you know? So I don't, I don't want to do it. 
Uh, oh, sorry. I'm going to answer one more question, and then yeah. I promise I'll stop. Then no, I'll you're good. Stop. You're good. This is all how good much, stuff. How much sodium does an athlete need daily? Does how much you sweat matter? You tend to crave salty foods. I wonder if you need to limit my intake. So a very nuanced question about salt. So salt, uh, so interesting aside that I tell other people this, and you may have heard this. This is my fun fact of the day. Sol uh, means salt in, uh, in, in Greek. So salary and soldier both come from the root salt because soldiers were paid in salt as their salary because it was worth as, uh, more than gold and they could trade it. So it's like their money. And anyway, now obviously salt's super cheap. Uh, but previously, salt was very, very special uh, and precious, and we obviously need it to function. So currently, the recommendations between the American Heart Association and the World uh, Institute of Medicine, rather, uh, who put out the RDA and RD, the recommended dietary intake and, uh, uh, or re and recommended dietary allowance, suggest that you should get uh, somewhere between 2,000 to 2,400 milligrams of so uh, sodium per day. All right, that's their, their sort of, you know, if you, if you have high blood pressure, it should be less. Although it's interesting that when they've actually studied people who only got that amount, they actually see a little bit increase in morbidity, disease, and uh, a little bit increase in mortality. Although that data is not perfect, it's just kind of interesting that that actually was in the Institute of Medicine uh, report. So there's some evidence suggesting that athletes who do train and sweat quite a bit, that they should be taking in between 4,000 to 6,000 milligrams of sodium per day, which ends up being like right around 10 or 11 uh, 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 grams of uh, salt in total per day in order to replace uh, what they've lost and maintain uh, uh, hydration. So uh, again, back to this dude on Twitter, he was trolling me. He's like, oh, and you tell people that they should sometimes drink like half a Gatorade mixed with a bouillon cube, you know, and water to, for hydration, just drink water. I'm like, well, water might not necessarily be the best thing to hydrate you. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, hydration is more than just fluid balance. You can have a normal fluid state in your body and be uh, and not be re you know uh, perfectly hydrated because your electrolyte status is off. Mm -hmm. So you could have hyponatremic euvolemia, which means that you're low on salt, but you have a normal amount of fluid in your body, and that's still not a, a good, a well hydrated state. So if you were to sweat a bunch, if you did a football player doing a two a day, and you just rehydrate with water, well, you run a very real risk of being hyponatremic. All right, low salt, and usually, you know, there's a lot of evidence that's saying that after uh, intense training, that most of us are uh, hyponatremic, but asymptomatic. We end up being fine. We eat, we drink, and it goes away. Now, if you did something silly like try to drink a bunch of Gatorade, like these two football players two years ago did, uh, they actually killed themselves because they tried to drink too much Gatorade, and ultimately led to uh, this hyponatremic state that made their brain swell. And uh, ultimately killed him. Yeah. So this one guy was reported to do like seven. It was either 17 liters of Gatorade or 17 gallons. I, I can't remember. It was an absurd amount of Gatorade, right? But the point is that Gatorade doesn't have much enough salt in it per fluid amount to optimally rehydrate somebody who sweat who has sweated a bunch. So one of the practices that they're using now is a bouillon cube with with water or with something like Gatorade because it's got a little sugar in it and that helps with uh, uh, taking all that stuff up. Uh, generally, what I have people do is like five to ten grams of BCAAs, with a little bit of carbohydrate, and uh, either a bouillon cube or a bunch of added salt. Uh, but that's why I put salt in Gains RX as well, like just one of those things um, to have to take that in. Now, 
all of those numbers and the case reports and stuff I just studied, like this stuff's in flux all the time. So again, the research scientist and his, you know, a uh, uh, closet who's like, oh, I'm about to get Feigenbaum. <laughs> like, please, yes, I want to read what you're reading. Please help me. Um, but it is interesting that uh, now very high-level athletic trainers are telling, you know, bouillon cube or chicken noodle soup post-training, right? Previously, it was just chocolate milk, and now it's like, oh, chocolate milk and some chicken noodle soup, which sounds gross. But uh, it, it basically underlies the fact that salt intake is important, um, especially for athletes. And uh, I, I think that there's no clear-cut sort of evidence here other than it's probably a good idea to uh, salt your food that it's not processed and you're likely going to be fine. That's kind of my base recommendation. If you are training in a situation where you're doing a lot of sweating and uh, stuff like that, then not only would I add extra salt to your meals, but you can try something like a swish and spit of pickle juice or uh, if you can stomach it, maybe like a little ramen. But that's what they show, that a swish and spit of a very high uh, salt sort of fluid can actually decrease uh, feelings of fatigue. So you don't have to swallow it. But yeah, there's, there's some evidence that there are receptors in the roof of the mouth that are somehow connected to a part of the brain that modulate fatigue. Anyway, I, that's way too scientific. The point is, please bring a pickle jar to the gym and a shot glass. And if you do that, take a picture and tag us because that'd be hilarious. So. Pickle juice and gains RX. So that is that will that fly or is that too much? What? That's the ne- that's the next that's the next flavor. How'd you know? Dill Gain, pickle. Gains RX bouillon cubes. Oh my god. <laughs> Doctor approved. Doctor approved. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Jordan. Thank you very much for your time. You have been a social media machine lately. We uh, appreciate it. Uh, where can everyone find you? Not sure. your physical address, but uh, you know. <laughs> yes, please don't show up at my apartment. Um, yeah, you can find me on Instagram. It's Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine. You can find me on my website, barbellmedicine.com, or you can email me at info at barbellmedicine.com. Now, do you, I don't want to, uh, maybe I'll edit this out if no, but do you take, uh, you're taking online clients? Yes, no. Do you do, uh, what do you call a nutrition consultation, like online programming, online dieting? Online dieting. Do you do yeah. that? Yeah. So I do nutritional consultations with folks. <laughs> um, I do online programming. I do. Uh, I don't do life coaching anymore. No, I never did life coaching. <laughs> certainly not qualified for that. But yeah, so we do online consultations for a lot of different stuff. Uh, we do program design, um, and yeah. So any 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 way we can help, we'll try our best. And uh, happy to have people reach out if they're interested. So shoot me an email. It's info at barbellmedicine.com. Um, that's all I got. All right. Again, thank you very much. Have a good night, Jordan. See you guys.